Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. We will be going into chapter 8 for the new material today with just a brief synopsis of chapter 7. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, if I were summarizing this to my kids, you know, explain it to me like I'm five, would be how Jesus is better than everything. <laughs> that's, that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. And he's got some fantastic arguments. Um, in chapter 7, of course, he's brought us back to this character that first arises in Genesis, Melchizedek. And he draws a comparison about Melchizedek being greater than Abraham. How so? Well, twofold. Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, showing that he's underneath. And then also Melchizedek blesses Abraham, showing a hierarchy there as well. And then he's got this really creative take, doesn't he? That even the tribe of the Levites, even Levi, is, as it were, in the loins of Abraham when Abraham is paying homage to Melchizedek. So, Jesus is, according to Psalm 110, and according to the oath of God in Psalm 110, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, thus greater not only than Abraham, but also than, obviously, of the Levitical priests. His point, once again, pastorally speaking, is that he's encouraging, he's encouraging his people not to apostatize, not to return to Judaism in order to avoid persecution, but rather to remain with Christ, who is superior in every way. All right, so there is a very brief synopsis of chapter 7 here to 4. Now, just so we can kind of pick back up natively and run, do a little run-up and run into chapter 8, let's pick up at chapter 7, verse 20. And again, we're kind of mid-argument here, but that's okay. Um, here he writes, and it was not without an oath. Now, that's going to be a reference to Psalm 110 that he quotes just below. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Okay, that's the Levitical priests. They were made priests without an oath of God. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, if you are in your Lutheran study Bible, you just look up the column a little ways back to the latter half of verse 17, then you'll see you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, what is the author of Hebrews doing? Sola Scriptura. He is just preaching every aspect of Psalm 110, and particularly these verses, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so Christ's priesthood is superior to that of the Levites. Okay, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, we're going to talk at length about this covenant and exactly what it means, but if you go looking through the red letters in your New Testament, where it is that Jesus himself defines the covenant, it's going to be when he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we're going to keep that in mind. We're going to remember that the old covenant, along with all of its content, was instantiated when Moses took the blood of bulls and sprinkled it on the people. Okay, so we're not being minimalistic here. We're going to say the entire new covenant, the entirety of what we know to be Christianity, okay, but it is instantiated in this cup of Jesus where it's not the blood of bulls being sprinkled, but the blood of God's Son being taken into us. That's the difference between these two covenants. So, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. More on that later. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So, look at these priests. They're mortal, so they've got to constantly be replaced. You know, maybe you buy a really nice pair of American-made pants and they last forever. Or you buy like 56 different pairs of Chinese-made pants, right? And you just keep throwing them away. Which is of better quality? <laughs> okay, in the same way, you've got these earthly mortal priests who are constantly needing to be replaced. They're not of the same value of Christ, the great high priest who endures forever. All right? So, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, verse 24, but he... Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And again, all he's doing is preaching Psalm 110. You are a priest forever, the Father says to the Son. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to, I love this language, save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. All right. So Jesus, and we're going to get into this, as the crucified has made the atoning sacrifice, Jesus as the risen one stands before God on our behalf, making intercession for us. And thus, as we draw near to God through him, he saves us us, saving us to the uttermost, without a doubt, without uncertainty. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Can you say that of any earthly priest, any Levitical priest? By no means. But because this is the divine Son of God, made man, made a little lower than the angels for a time, he is indeed holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. 
Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests, the Levitical high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. All right, we might already even find a contrast here because Christ makes his sacrifice once and for all. So that's a, that's a superior sacrifice, right? It's like Jesus at the, at the well with the woman. You know, if you could, if, if he could give you water to drink and you would never thirst again, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't you sign up for that? If you could eat this meal and never eat again or drink this drink and never have to drink again, wouldn't that be great? We'd all sign up for it. All right. So a similar thing here. They have to sacrifice daily because their sacrifices are so inferior. They have to be repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. Um, Christ is superior because it's once and for all. Now, that's not chiefly what's in view here, but we can make that contrast. So, once more from the top, 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. Ha! He doesn't have to. They do. He doesn't have to. Why? Because, as we've just heard, he is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So he does not have to offer first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. So again, there is the contrast between the daily versus the once, and not offering for his own sins, and then for uh, those of other people recurrently, repeatedly, but doing it once for all when he offered up himself. Now, as he offers up himself, we see now a twofold reality. He is high priest, but he is also sacrifice. Now we can revisit that language of holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And we can see, I think here, obviously a reference to his being a high priest, but we can see some overlap with him being the sacrifice. And this is going to be drawn out um, a little bit more specifically by the author of Hebrews. But he is that lamb which is unblemished, firstborn, male, the lamb required in the Old Testament scriptures, the sacrifice you know, to which all the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed is this Christ Jesus, who even as a lamb is holy, innocent, unstained, etc. And indeed, exalted above the heavens. As you look in Revelation, one of the great shocks is the reveal of Christ in the heavenly throne room, and he is in the appearance of a lamb. And a lamb who stands and yet stands as one having been slain. Okay, so now we're reflecting on this kind of dual reality the major point thus far in the argument is that he's the high priest. The minor point has come in definitively that he offers up himself. Christ the victim, Christ the priest, as we say. All right, verse 28, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, what's that a reference to? Yep, Psalm 110, we haven't left the text. He's still preaching the text. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, there's so much delight in here. Because elsewhere, particularly in Paul, the argument is made that the covenant of Christ is greater than the covenant of the law because it came before. So, how so? Well, you could go all the way back to Adam and Eve and the promise there in the garden that um, one would come born of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. That is the very first covenant or promise that God makes. That Christ is going to come and crush the serpent's head, undoing sin and death. Make sense? Okay, so then the argument would be, well, whenever God put the law in place through Moses, however many thousands of years later that took place, it can't nullify that which came before. It's the older, deeper magic. <laughs> okay, and then what else could you point to? And here Paul more explicitly points in this direction to Abraham. That a parallel promise that was made to Adam and Eve is made to Abraham, namely that through his offspring, and Paul says offspring singular makes a big deal of this, capital O offspring, through his offspring, that is through Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that this calling and promise to Abraham that Abraham believes takes place before circumcision or after circumcision. Before. Meaning two wonderful things, that the promise is made to Abraham while he's a Gentile, <laughs> so to speak. Um, that's the lesser. But the more, uh, the greater, is that he, this promise is made to him before circumcision, that is before the law. So the point is that, again, that which has come before cannot be nullified by that which comes after, okay, it's greater. We can see then that the law given through Moses is temporary for a time. And that's why Paul then suggests that it's a pedagogue to drive us to Christ. It's given to make sin, to show sin exceedingly sinful, to show the, the all, in, in all the sacrifice of the animals that it is going to be only through the shedding of blood that we have full, final, complete forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. Now, the author of Hebrews, though, takes us a different direction, doesn't he? Almost inverting the logic of St. Paul and, I would argue, other scriptures. And here he looks at it like this. Now, to be short, he's already tied it in with Melchizedek, who precedes Moses and the law. So I don't think he's opposed to this argument that the gospel, the promise, that covenant of Christ precedes the Sinaitic law. I think he would affirm that and say, yeah, hello, that's been my point. But look what he does next. So again, we're on, um, we're on 28. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law. All right, the law came with Moses roughly 15 hundred years before Christ. Okay, when is Psalm 110 written? Well, we don't know exactly, but after Moses. Okay? And in this psalm is the oath by which God swears you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So the word of the oath which came later than the law 
appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All right? So that's an interesting point because if you tie this in with what he said about Melchizedek, then he's effectively said Christ is greater because Christ came before the covenant and Christ is greater because even after the old covenant, I'm referring to, even after the old covenant, God speaks and promises and swears an oath that Christ is the true. So either way you look at it, whether you look at it from um, the fact that Melchizedek precedes the Levites, or whether you look at it that Psalm 110 comes after the Levites, either way God has shown the superiority of Christ as our high priest. Does that make sense? All right. Hopefully I didn't confuse anyone there, but um, it is a, it is a kind of a complicated and interesting argument to make to show the superiority of Christ's priesthood, of his being high priest over and against um, the high priests of the Levites. Let's pause there, see if you have any questions, concerns, or if you're seeing something that I'm uh, missing that I should be seeing. Please. Can you go over uh, Abraham believed by faith before circumcision? You're equating circumcision to the law. So um, can you expand for a minute or two uh, what that... uh, uh, what that meant. Uh, he, he, uh, yeah, let me see if I can track it down because what I'm really trying to summarize is the argument in Romans. Maybe put a finger here on Hebrews, uh, the end of chapter 7. Let's flip forward to Romans. I'm basically just trying to, oh, sorry, flip backwards to Romans. Um, just trying to, in a sense, summarize the argument that Paul makes why we are justified apart from the works of the law, the argument presented, uh, Romans chapter 4, that Abraham was justified apart from the works of the law, prior to the works of the law. Let's see if, um, let's see if we can look at chapter 4 and just make sense of it, even though we're kind of jumping into the middle of the argument. What then, chapter 4, verse 1 of Romans, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather? Now, of course, um, Paul is speaking here as a Jew, our or as a Hebrew, our forefather according to the flesh, biology, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What what essentially is Paul saying here? Well, if he's justified by works, it would only be in comparison to us. And then we could indeed say he's justified by works, but not before God. Horizontally, you could maybe make that argument. He's better than we are, but not vertically. There's no justification before God such that he could boast and say, hey, I've earned and merited salvation. I mean, the beauty and faithfulness of Abraham is he would be the last to make that claim. Okay? But again, let's not lose the forest for the trees. If Abraham was justified by works, is he justified by works before God? No. That's the claim so far. All right? Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham 
believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that count, that's the word that, that counted, the reckoned, the credited. That's the word, really frankly, upon which the Reformation is built. And a, the, the clearest, crystal clear biblical picture of the doctrine of justification. Abraham believed God and it was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. It was not obvious. It's not as if this act of belief somehow blotted out all of Abraham's sins or, you know, this credit paid the, paid, um, the entirety of his debt. That's not what's being said. God reckoned or counted this faithfulness of his as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, <clears throat> his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. Okay, so what's, what's going on here? Um, to the one who works, that is, so you go in and you punch the clock at 8 o'clock, and then you get done at 5 p.m. and you punch the clock. And then, and then your, your employer comes and says, okay, well, two weeks has been up. Here's your paycheck that I'm graciously giving to you as a gift. You go, <laughs> that's not a gracious gift. Would I have received it if I didn't show up? Obviously, it's my due. It's what I've earned. So that's, that's what's happening here. Um, the one who works his wages, that is what he is paid at the end of the day or at the end of the two weeks, isn't counted as a gift. It isn't according to grace, but rather as his due, as the debt that is owed him. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, reckoned as righteousness. Now we're going to draw a line between Abraham and David, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Now we're quoting David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. The Lord will not count his sin. Okay, take a look at, take a look at verse nine. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Okay, so here's the first point I brought up. Is it for the Jew only, the circumcised, or also for the Gentile? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. That is, so while he was uncircumcised, he received the promise. You see, that's why Abraham is justified as a Gentile, and then as a Jew, showing that God's plan was to incorporate the Gentiles from the start, you see. And this, this all to answer directly the question posed in 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Um, Abraham himself, your father, as a, as a Jew, as a Hebrew, 
shows you that it's also for the uncircumcised. All right, so how then was it counted to him? Now look at this. Here's where we've got the second question embedded. So look at the, look at the latter half of verse 9. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now we've already said faith apart from works. If it's works, it's what's due, it's wages. This isn't that, this is gift. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith whilst he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. What is that? The father of the Gentile Christians. Yeah, this is why, this is why we say Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. This is why, um, also, being a, fr- from this point forward, being a biological descendant of Abraham doesn't mean anything. The church's preoccupation from time to time throughout her history, and maybe especially here in America, the church's preoccupation with those who are biological descendants of Abraham is misguided. That's not what's important. We're not waiting for the nation of Israel to be reinstated, for the physical temple to be rebuilt, for the Antichrist to descend and rule from there. We're not, we're not waiting for these kiliastic ideas that, that there's going to be a physical kingdom of Christ on earth for a thousand years. We're not, we're not waiting for that. Why? The true Israel are those who have faith in Christ. The true sons of Abraham are those who have faith in Christ, whether they're circumcised or uncircumcised. Yes, please. To my mind, it seems so hidden, that concept. Of, and please forgive me, I'm, I just haven't reviewed this well enough, probably, to make my point clearly. Mm-hmm. But... Um, the Jewish nation um, considers their their um, you know what I, I probably should write this down before I make a comment. But okay, it, yeah. It it just seems like we're we're I'm learning this for the first time, and I don't know. Yeah. Speak to my lack of clarity. <laughs> okay, um, so we might we might put it. And I'm sorry to be so crass about it, um, at least to our modern American sensibilities. Was um, was Adam circumcised? No. Was Noah? No. Um, what about Abraham when he received the promise? No. Okay. Now, if you're if you're you have to put yourself in this mindset. If what marks you out as an Israelite, as a son of Abraham, is that you are circumcised, okay, then then you view the circumcised as, hey, we're the ones who are 
in and everybody who's uncircumcised is out. That's not a good way to look at it. That's Paul's argument as someone who is circumcised, as a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's poking holes in that view. Remember as, remember as both John the Baptist and Jesus approached the Pharisees with the message of repent and believe in Christ, the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Do you remember what their defense to that is? Universally. We're sons of Abraham. Jesus even outright says, don't say to me that you're sons of Abraham. Remember how ridiculous this is? They say, we're, we're sons of Abraham. We've never been enslaved by anyone. <laughs> it was only the sons of Abraham who were enslaved in Israel. And they are enslaved in Egypt. And they themselves are enslaved right now by Roman occupation. What are you talking about? To say nothing of your sins. Okay, so they're constantly beating their chest. We're of the circumcision. We're of the biology, the descendants of Abraham. And what are, what is, what is John the Baptist, Jesus, and St. Paul doing? Poking holes in that. Yeah. So, uh, again, no one is circumcised up until the point of Abraham. And he himself is justified, reckoned as righteous on account of faith, not on account of circumcision. Now, the first point of this, as I said, kind of going way back, the first point of this is that the Gentiles are saved and have been saved from the start. Even if you've got this kind of narrow Hebrew worldview that we're the circumcised and the circumcised are already in, always in and we're the insiders and we're the people. No. Everyone prior to Abraham, even Abraham himself, was uncircumcised when they received the promises of God. You see, the promise has always been to man, not to Jew alone. Okay. Now, the second point that's going to be made, and we've just got to keep progressing along here, but the second point that's going to be made actually ties in with his greater point here in the rhetoric of Romans, and that is that if he's justified before circumcision, he's justified before the instantiation of the law. Because that's viewed from the angle of the law, circumcision is the first thing. Okay. So Paul's going to make the point that Abraham at this point has no works of the law and is justified. Thus we're justified apart from the works of the law. Yeah, that's the secondary point. So. Okay, did I see a hand trying to come up? No? All right. All right. Okay, so let's just go a little further then. Um, is this of interest? I know that this is a little bit of a... A, a rabbit trail. All right. Um, so, so let's see where we could pick back up. Verse 10 will be a little redundant, but let's do it. How then was it counted to him? That is righteousness. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Yeah. Yeah, so he's just yeah, he's um he's seen as righteous, reckoned as righteous by faith um before he's circumcised and that he is circumcised rather as a fruit of his faith. Which what is St. Paul setting up? That obedience to the law of God not circumcision proper, but to the law of God is a fruit of justification, not justification itself. 
Abraham being circumcised is a fruit or a sign or a seal of what God has already done by creating faith within him and crediting that faith as righteousness. So uh, he continues, um, latter half of verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised as the father of the Gentiles. It's unbelievable. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's us. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. What makes you a son of Abraham is not circumcision itself, but rather faith. That's the point. All right, let's let's carry on. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring. Who are his offspring? Yeah, everybody who believes. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world? This actually is great that we're reading this because we're gonna, we're gonna hear the author of Hebrews say, these died having not received the promises. The promised land that's given to Abraham is not just the little chunk of land known as Israel. It's the, it's the entirety of the world. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now again, Paul's seeing the law and circumcision. Circumcision is the beginning of the law. That's why in Galatians, um, remember after Paul goes and preaches the gospel, the Judaizers sweep in behind and they say, yeah, 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 you're justified by faith. All you have to do to be saved is believe and be circumcised. Because what is circumcision? It's the beginning of obedience to the law. So what are they saying? You have to believe and do the work of the law, the first work of the law, and then you will be saved. That's why Paul comes sweeping in and says, if you're if you're circumcised because you think you're going to be saved by being circumcised, you've fallen from grace. It's apart from the works of the law, obviously, of which circ- so what matters isn't circumcision or uncircumcision, but a new creation, becoming a new creature through faith and baptism. All right, so we're tying this in with Paul's larger ministry and what he's been up against. Okay, so... Um, again with verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law. See how it makes no sense for it to come through Moses? Moses is like 500 years later. The law here is viewed as circumcision. It didn't come to him through circumcision, that is through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. Because it doesn't matter if what comes after changes it, changes the conditions, then what came before it doesn't matter. So it's like it's like, well, I if if ultimately what matters is that you're circumcised or not, that you obey the law or not, then neither the promise nor faith mean anything. 
But since the promise and faith mean everything, then it can't be true that you're justified by circumcision of the works of the law. You see. So, if it is by the adherence, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, the heirs of the what? Of the world. <laughs> faith is null and the promise is void. Since faith is not null and the promise is not void, then it must be the case that it is not the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, but rather those who share the faith that Abraham had. The faith in the promise. All right, verse 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, a circumcised Jew, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, the uncircumcised Gentile. Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That has nothing to do with biology. You see how Paul's reading it? It has everything to do with the faithful scattered throughout all the nations. Thus, Abraham becomes the father of the nations. That's why when, when God says to Abraham, your offspring will be as the stars of the sky or as the sand of the shore, he's not talking about biology. I mean, that happens to be true. But the, the, but the referent, the primary referent, is those who will share faith of Abraham and thus be his children for eternity and thus inherit the world with him for eternity. That's the promise of God. Okay, and then we go into this other argument, which if you thought that one was challenging, Paul's not done with the challenges. But um, yeah, this is... um. This again, not to lose the forest for the trees, because what's the larger overarching point and argument that he's making? That it is not the deeds of the law by which God counts us as righteous, but by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay. So this twofold thing. First of all, that salvation is for the Gentiles also, and that salvation is um, apart from the works of the law. Both of these are demonstrated in Abraham being justified by faith before being circumcised. So I know that that was a really lengthy answer to your question. <laughs> but that's the, uh, that's the point, um, the points from which I'm drawing. Did, did you have a follow-up? Did that help? I just wanted a comment that I can see why for hundreds of years the church got off track. They didn't, and Martin Luther brought the church back to we're saved by faith, by grace through faith alone. And uh, parsing through this like you just did was fabulous, I think, to uh, clarify this. And this is going to be one of my favorite chapters. Yeah, yeah, this is, it's great four. stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of truth there. So. And if I may point out, what is Paul, What again, what is Paul doing? It's not like he's like, hey, this just in from the Lord. <laughs> or, hey, I came up with this on my own. You know, I had a rather productive walk. Um, and, I, and this is the theology that came to me. He's, he's taking us back to the Scriptures. His entire argument is based on 
Abraham in the scriptures, and you can go back, I think it's Genesis 15, you can go back and look at all of this and make sure that he's telling, that Paul's doing good exegesis and telling you the truth. And you can read and see for yourself and then infer these things. And so what I'm trying to say as kind of my final point here is that Paul, much like the author of Hebrews, much like all the other authors of the New Testament, are doing sola scriptura. They're drawing their theology from the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures are frankly sufficient in and of themselves, and it's the superabundant nature of God's grace that we even have a New Testament. It's not strictly speaking necessary. All that's necessary is in the Old. The New is just the abundance of God's graciousness and glory and kindness toward man. All right, shall we, uh, anything more on Romans or shall we, I don't want to make this into a, entirely a class on Romans. Shall we go um, back to back to Hebrews? Good? Okay. And that was good because we're going to get into Abraham, obviously, and we're going to get into um, the so-called uh, Hall of Faith, the great cloud of witnesses, in a few more chapters. Okay, so yes, we've got this same kind of argument going on here in the at the end of uh, Hebrews seven. Um, we've got this word of the oath, Psalm one ten, which came later than the law, appoints a son who had been made perfect forever. Again, there's just something so delightful. There's a temporal component to the argument and an eternal. Perfect forever, an eternal component. All right, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. I love that. Sometimes I have to do that in my sermons as well. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So that is kingly language. You've got it, but you've got the two blurred together. See how the Christology heretofore really has been Christ as king and Christ as high priest. We have such a high priest, okay, but he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, king. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. Okay, And you will recall that when God instructs Moses to build the tabernacle, it is modeled after whatever the heavenly reality of this is, of which God himself knows. Moses doesn't know. We don't know. But this is what the author of Hebrews is referring to, that what you have down here in the it's not the tabernacle anymore, it's the temple. But what you have here in the temple is merely a model of the real thing that is up in heaven. Christ is in the real thing as our real high priest ministering on our behalf. Why would you ever turn to that which is just the model of the real thing into a lesser priesthood? Make sense? Okay. Exactly, yeah. So just to kind of summarize, Christ, both as as the one who's ministering at the mercy seat as a high priest and the one whose blood is poured out 
on the mercy seat, which would be the Lamb. He's both, and that's taking place in the heavenly reality, which always has been. And that was what God referred to when he instructed Moses to build the tabernacle and in effect, later Solomon to build the temple, modeled after this heavenly reality that has existed forever. Christ has ascended there as our high priest and our sacrifice. Now, and the point of the author of Hebrews is he had to become that by becoming incarnate, a little lower than the angels, and learning obedience and fulfilling um, both his role as high priest and victim via the cross, Thus, and to blur this with Revelation, thus he comes in, is coronated, and stands as the perpetual high priest. He is, in the language of Revelation, worthy to open the seals, which is the salvation of the world and the conclusion of this age. But that has to, in effect, be earned or won or done as a man. And that's where you get the progressive language um, that Christ progresses um, here in Hebrews. All right, so he is, uh, we have such a high priest, this first one of chapter 8, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man, not Moses, not Solomon. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest, Christ, also to have something to offer. And obviously I think the primary answer would be himself. Um, and where do I get that from? Well, chapter 7, verse 27. Since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. All right, verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So, on earth did Jesus partake in the Levitical priesthood? No, he's born of... Judah, and that's simply the argument here. You wouldn't find Jesus in the temple offering sacrifices, trying to be the Levitical high priest. That's not in accordance with the law. That's not in accordance with his high priesthood, his high priesthood being far superior. Verse 5, they serve, the Levitical priests on earth, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly thing. And he's already made the argument that Christ is up there not serving a copy and a shadow, but the actual heavy, heavenly things. Okay, continuing um, after the first sentence of verse 5, For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle of the Old Testament, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain, on Sinai. But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. 
since it is enacted on better promises. Again, chief of which you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're going to last forever. Your sacrifice is going to be forever. Those are the better promises. Obviously, you can expand on that as much as you want. Verse 7, for if that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Sinai, had been faultless, and again, don't take that overly literally. It just means like if it had been perfect or complete. There would have been no occasion to look for a second. But the fact that there is a second shows that that, the nature of that, the Sinaitic covenant is that it's temporary. Now, what do we know that they didn't know at this time, which is like the slam dunk on all of this? Where's the Levitical priesthood today? Gone. Sacrifices. Gone. Temple. Gone. They didn't know that. So they're believing this all by faith. Now for us, it's like, probably, probably the, <laughs> probably 70 AD, if the author of, of Hebrews was alive for it, he was throwing himself a party. It's Margarita night. They got, <laughs> like, here it is. Here it is. All this earthly stuff is temporary and inferior, and now it's and that according actually to the prophecy of Christ. I don't mean to make light of it because it's all a serious thing. But he was probably rejoicing because it just confirmed his entire theology. But it was Jesus himself who prophesied and proclaimed this. Uh, one of the, there's actually not that many future prophecies of Jesus where Jesus says this is going to happen. Um, he doesn't do a lot of that. But one that he does, and maybe even the most obvious, is um, remember his disciples come up to him and uh, Herod had been embellishing. This is the second temple. The first temple was destroyed um, by the Babylonians in 587. And then, of course, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're all engaged in the beard pulling and the rebuilding of the second temple. And when the second temple, the footprints there, and maybe it's, I can't recall exactly the state of it, but the people all gather together and the younger people are rejoicing. And the older people are weeping because they remember the former glory. All right, well, then Herod comes along. Now, this is hundreds of years later, but Herod comes along and goes, let's, let's beautify that thing. And so he's going about um, adorning the sem- second temple and making it beautiful because even though he's a complete turncoat and crook and unfaithful person, he wants all the Jews to see him as a hero and as a Jew of the Jews. That's why he's doing all this. And so the disciples noting his his work say, look at these great, great stones. Look at how ornate the decorations. And Jesus is completely unimpressed. <laughs> you remember what he says? The day will come when not one of these sta- stones will stand upon another. Direct prophecy of what happens in AD 70 when the temple is destroyed and so it remains to this day destroyed so uh, and Christ in other places testifies and prophesies of this as well and it comes true confirming him as a true prophet and confirming this entire theology of the author of Hebrews yes please I feel like such an illiterate on this it, it it's a mystery that this is please this fits within the context of the Jewish nation's interpretation of Jesus. But this is a book I'm suggesting 
maybe some embarrassment, my children would never read this. Mm-hmm. It, what is, what am I, my point is that there is, this is so obscure to, to a lot of us Christians. Mm-hmm. But God in his mercy still ex- will accept us knowing that Jesus is our Savior. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, and in, I mean, I hate to sound like so, so, so controversial. <laughs> Maybe in that respect, so much like Luther. This book really isn't written for us. You know, the same way Luther says the Ten Commandments aren't really written to us; they're written to the to the Jews. This really isn't written to us. It's not written to twenty first century Gentiles. Yeah, that closes the circle for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, look, it's God's word. It's great. It's glorious. It's edifying. It's it's valuable to study all of the above. But properly speaking, this is written to first century Hebrews who had the option of going back to the temple and the Levitical priesthood. That that door's been closed. So at least in that sense, it's not written to us, and that's why it's obscure. It's also why it's so fun, um, because you know there's not a there's not a spear point poked right into our chest on this one. Um, it's just it's exploratory, and we know very little of the Old Testament, and we what we learn then we contrast Christ, and we learn even more about Him, and so it's a joy. I hope there's no test to get into heaven. Not on Hebrews or anything else. No, it, it's not. Um, God is gracious. He forgives us all our sins. Um, even that which he obviously forgives us. Uh, those those uh, parts of theology that we maybe have wrong. And um, those parts of theology of which we are largely ignorant. He has mercy on that as well. Yeah, if there was an exam to get into test, uh, to, to get into heaven, nobody would pass that test except for Jesus, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's um let's go just a little further along here. All right, so um we have Jesus with the more excellent covenant. Um and if you look here at verse 6, but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry, a priesthood and a service of the temple that is as much more excellent than the old, the Levitical ministry. As the covenant he mediates, think of his chalice, his cross and chalice, is better. Better than what? The first covenant brought by Moses. The first, the first covenant where the people having a good time at Sinai. There was lightning and thunder and fire and they were terrified and they were begging God. You know how every American is like, I wish God would talk to me. Oh, maybe he does talk to me. The Israelites are like, please have God stop talking. (laughs) It's terrifying. We are losing control of our bowels. Um, (laughs) Moses, would you please speak? Would you please mediate? No one wanted to hear from God on Sinai. It was not a good time. There was a boundary set around it. If you crossed that boundary, you were dead. Um, this was this was fear and trembling. And then Moses is like, you know, here's the gospel of Sinai. Don't worry. You're just getting hit by the blood of innocent animals that had just been slain and it's still warm and it's dripping down your face and beard and ruining your clothing and you're just doused in animal blood going, oh, are, we, are we having a good time yet? Okay. <laughs> this, so... Think of, think of that covenant. All right. Intense. Intense. 
Now, and I'm kind of making light and having fun with it, um, obviously, but, but think of the intensity of that to be, to be scared for your very life at the foot of Sinai. That lightning was going to strike you, that you're going to be obliterated by the presence of God. You're trembling, you can't even take it. Blood's being thrown at you. Um, this is a, now contrast that with the covenant of, um, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Calvary, where Christ is crucified. Now, in a sense, you still have the same intensity, but it's not directed toward us. It's directed toward Christ in our stead. And you're not having the blood of bulls shot all over you as the only thing keeping you alive, but you're having his, his cup placed to your lips for you for the forgiveness of your sins, and thus you're alive. He bears the wrath of God in our place. He dies that we might have life. He's wounded that we might be healed. That's a better covenant, wouldn't you say? In every sense, in terms of its content, in terms of its effect, all of the above. But the two that you just described the Israel experience, we will not have that as, as wonderful as when we die. Right, right. The sheer, the sheer terror of the Sinaitic Covenant is contrasted, is contrasted with Christ who comes in meekness and lowliness of heart to pour out his blood for us for the forgiveness of our sins. I mean, that's one of the reasons why it's a better covenant. Yeah. Um, now it's not to say that any of the holiness is lost, any of the awe or terror of being in the presence of a holy God is lost. It's not lost. It's that we are safe in Christ um, and uh, receiving his body for us and his blood shed for us. And we can be certain. Um, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it's analogous to, um, it's kind of the fulfillment to this idea in Psalm 130. Um, how does it start? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Okay, now this is the interesting part. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So, whereas, whereas Sinai would just be like raw fear and terror, the fear of Calvary is so much more strange. It's like all that energy and emotion is still there, but it's all borne by Christ, amplifying his salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. The greater fear, just not a primal fear, not a terror, but the greater fear is in the second, is in the forgiveness of sins. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Why? Because all the power and lightning and fire and wrath and um, near death of Sinai is, is encompassed, absorbed, taken in, and transferred in the death of Christ for you and for me, and his cup poured out and shed for us. So there's a sense in which when that cup is put to your lips, the cup of his blood is put to your lips on Sunday morning, it's everything Sinai was and more. It's all been bent toward you and for your salvation. That's why with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's not kind of like the, it's not like the terror 
Um, but it's the awe that cu- that Sinai, with all of its terror, has been fulfilled and transformed by the power of the cross, which is infinitely greater and now poured out for me and for you. So that's we're going to get to this, by the way, when he describes you have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Calvary, and he's going to do these two mountains and these two worships, and you're going to see that none of the fear and reverence is gone, but it's transformed. And so, anyway, we're going to see that, but that idea is reflected a few places in the Old Testament prophetically. Psalm 130 is one of the keys, um, but then really, really um, enjoying as we partake of his very body and blood, the sacrifice for our forgiveness. So, that's probably, I see we're out of time, that's probably a good place to stop because um, if you wanted to really know about the New Covenant from an Old Testament perspective, we're going to be digging into that next week. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. Jeremiah 31, as it relates to the New Covenant of Christ, the cross and the cup. Don't miss it. The Lord be with you.